It's our desire to engage well with those who we live around, work among, uh, spend time among each, each week. We want to understand the secular mindset. We want to understand the people that we've been called to witness to and to reach. We've also been called to engage with ideas that are false, to expose them by the light of Scripture so that we would be protected from false teaching and the dangers that it brings. Now, we've been looking at several different subjects, but really it's the same subject. Uh, What I'm trying to show is that there is a modern social justice movement uh, that seems to be growing in our culture at this time that I think is very threatening to the gospel. And it is threatening to the gospel because it redefines sin. It redefines what is right and what is wrong. It redefines the concepts of justice and righteousness. And once you lose those categories and those ideas, you've lost something that is integral, intrinsic to the gospel itself. Namely, what does it mean when we say, I am a sinner in need of salvation? We've seen that this modern social justice movement does not define justice in terms of an absolute right and wrong principles of good and evil handed down by God to his creation. Rather, modern social justice has redefined justice in terms of equality. In terms of people and particularly groups of people, identity groups, being equal in terms of their voice, their power, their resources. And we just don't have time to go back into it each time that we meet. And so if you missed the first one of these messages, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And that will help you understand what it is we're talking about. We saw how that is playing out last Sunday night in the issue of income inequality, economic inequality. Uh, Why uh, do people like Bernie Sanders and others uh, claim that it is a social justice issue to be able to get free health care for all, free education for all? Uh, Why do they think that way? And we saw uh, where that worldview comes from. Tonight we're going a direction you may not have expected, which is the issue of abortion. But the truth is, once you understand this new mindset, it helps make sense of the way those who hold to a pro-choice view, it helps to explain why they look at things the way they do. I don't know if you've ever noticed how sometimes in discussions between a pro-life and especially a pro-life Christian and a pro-choice unbeliever, it often seems like they're talking past each other. Because for the pro-life believer, they have one issue that's central to their argument, which is the sanctity of human life, the dignity of the baby, the dignity of the child. Whereas those who hold to a pro-choice movement uh, tend to not say much about the child. Indeed, they don't refer to it as a baby. They refer to it as a fetus. But that's not even their concern. Their concern is... Women's rights, women's health care, reproductive freedom. They are thinking of the issue in terms of justice for women. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to do what we're going to do here tonight is I think it will help show how this social justice mindset affects the way people see all kinds of different issues and explains why people have the worldviews that they have. This is a time in our society where the issue of abortion is becoming, once again, front and center. It doesn't go long without being front and center, does it? It comes back over and over and over again. And that's because the practice of abortion continues, though, praise God, it is decreasing in our society. Uh, For many years now, the number of abortions in our land has been going down rather than going up. And we should thank God for that. Uh, But this continues to be an issue, and it's particularly an issue right now because of the change of the U.S.'s highest court, uh, because there is what some call a a, a, uh, five-justice majority of conservatives, Uh, whether they would actually vote that way on an issue of abortion if brought before them, we don't know yet. I have a feeling this next term we're going to find out. And so because of that, you've already seen many states preparing for what would happen 
if the Supreme Court struck down the Roe v. Wade decision uh, that declared abortion a constitutional right. Now, that's not our issue tonight, but I would encourage you to open up the Constitution for yourself and to see if there is any mention of abortion at all, and you will see that there is not, that the right to abortion that was declared a constitutional right was found in the portion of the Constitution dealing with privacy and the rights that you have for governments not to quarter troops in your house and not to invade your house. And so it's under the argument for privacy uh, that abortion found its place as a constitutional right. Well, if that were to be struck down, uh, then the issue would go back to the states. And so you've seen many conservative states, um, Alabama, Mississippi, and others, uh, who have already uh, put laws on the books that would basically outlaw abortion should it become something that they can outlaw. Uh, you've seen other states, New York most notably, who have put in place very uh, liberal abortion laws saying that abortion would be legal all the way up to the very last minute before birth, um, all the way up to moments before the child is born. Indeed, some argue that the language is such that actually the child could be partially born and then um, killed. And so different states reflecting the values of, of their voters uh, have already begun taking positions on this issue. So why do those who hold to a pro-choice view think the way they think? So what we're going to look at are some interviews that were done uh, with students at MIT. Now you can go online and find this for yourself. This is a MIT site, a site at least associated with MIT. Uh, it is a group of students on that campus who are pro-choice. And this is on their webpage explaining why they're pro-choice. So as we've said from the beginning, we want to present these issues uh, not from the critics. We want to present these issues from the people themselves who hold to these positions. Uh, we want to treat uh, those who hold these values uh, that are very different from our own, we want to treat them with fairness. And we want to make sure that we're understanding and representing fairly what they believe. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, I have three of them here. We, we will see how far we get uh, in talking through these. But I think enough light will be shown tonight where you'll see the issues of equality and social justice in the way these people answered. Have your Bible ready. We're going to be flipping quite a bit as we evaluate some of these arguments. So the first testimony uh, on that particular webpage from an MIT student about why they are pro-choice comes from an undergraduate in chemistry there at MIT. The student says, I am pro-choice because I don't think there is any reason why a woman should have to face all the consequences from something she did not do alone. If a guy can get a woman pregnant and then run away, there is no reason why she should be the one responsible for everything. Having more options puts a woman on more equal footing with men instead of being someone of whom they can take advantage. In addition, I believe that it is best for a child not to be born at all than to be born hated to a mother who is forced to have him because she has no choice and not because she wants the child. So that's the argument. Let's break it apart a little bit and see if we can hold some of these ideas up to biblical scrutiny. So first we have here the argument that a woman should not face all the consequences from something that she did not do alone. How would we respond to that from a biblical worldview? Well, first of all, that way of speaking denigrates children. The consequences that the person is talking about is the consequence of a child, a child being born. And we need to understand that in the biblical worldview, children are not merely a consequence. Children are a gift. Children are a blessing. We've seen this many times. If you want to look at Psalm 127, uh, verses 3 through 5, 
Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gift. I'm sorry, in the gate. Uh, So throughout the pages of the Bible, we see children um, treated as a blessing from God. Uh, We often see those uh, those women who struggled with barrenness. Uh, They are often seen as uh, being under a curse of some kind, and it is often seen as a a miracle, a gift of God's blessing when that woman bore a child. So the biblical worldview looks upon children as a gift, as a blessing, not merely as a consequence that comes from sexual activity. But not only that, this argument denigrates sexual intimacy. What happened? Oh, yeah, y'all aren't going to be able to follow my notes. I just want y'all to see the the quote. You're good. Yeah, I'm not going to scroll the whole time. That would be... Sorry, that would be crazy. Um, This argument denigrates sexual intimacy. In other words, this person is not saying um, we don't want a woman to face having to raise a child alone. Therefore, we should pursue sexual purity. That's not the argument. The argument is that women as well as men should be able to continue to pursue sexually active lives outside of marriage and there not be the consequence of a child. In this worldview, the child is a problem. The worldview is we want to be able to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage freely, with no strings attached. And the problem with that is there's this thing that can happen called a child. And we've got to figure out how to escape that consequence. In the biblical worldview, sexual intimacy is a gift for marriage where the man and the woman are committed to one another and to any children that God may give them. So it's two very different ways of looking at sexual intimacy. One view, the the, the view that's growing in our culture, treats it as something almost trivial, casual. Something that uh, there's no deeper meaning to it. It's just a fling. It's just something that happens. And because of that, uh, they see it as an inconvenience. Should something like pregnancy come about. But the Bible treats sexual intimacy as something very special. As something valuable, as something precious that is experienced between a man and his wife within the context of commitment. Within the context of vows that have been made before God. Uh, We see this particularly in Genesis 1. So turn with me to Genesis 1. So many of these worldview issues go back to Genesis 1. And the way we understand these opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man with this overarching mission, have dominion. And then what we see in the verses that follow is what is often called the creation mandates. How is man to exercise this dominion? And we see three things in particular. We see that man is to work. Chapter 2, God comes to Adam, says, cultivate the garden. Right? I've created this whole earth, and then on that earth, I've cultivated a little area called the Garden of Eden. The rest, it's wilderness, it's uncultivated, it's unworked. Adam... I want you to begin the work. Keep this garden. Tend this garden. And then there will be times for you to rest. Right? God blessed the Sabbath day. Made it holy. So Adam, you're to have a pattern. You're going to work. You're going to rest. You're going to work and you're going to rest. Oh, and then also you're going to multiply. So that as you and your wife bear children, they will take on this 
this um, mandate of work and rest. And the garden will continue to grow. The garden will continue to increase until the day when, when the whole planet is a cultivated planet. And so that's the picture that's found there, is that man is to have dominion over this earth. How? Through work, through rest, and through procreation. But then God established creation institutions for each one of those mandates. For work, he gave us the six days of work. God created the world in six days. He didn't do that because he needed six days. God created the world in six days to say, this is what I'm instituting for man. I want you to have dominion by working, and I'm going to give you six days a week to do it. God said, I also want you to have time of rest, time of fellowship, communion with me, worship, a day of rest. So he instituted the Sabbath. He said, that Sabbath, seventh day, right? I rested as a pattern for you. You rest. But what was the institution that God gave for procreation? And the answer, of course, is marriage. That God created Eve out of Adam brought Eve to Adam and said, now together, right, you are going to multiply and fill the earth. So when Christians think about sexual activity, we are always thinking in the context of marriage. We're always thinking also in connection with a relationship where the couple is open to children if God would give them and are willing to receive them should God give them. When we separate sex from marriage, we make it smaller, we make it less meaningful, we make it really nothing more than the pursuit of feelings, nothing more than the pursuit of an experience. Um, One sin does not justify another. What you have in the practice of abortion too often is the sin of fornication leading to the sin of murder. One sin, the consequence, how do we deal with that sin, with that consequence, with with another sin. So what we see in, in the beginning of this argument is a way of looking at sex and a way of looking at relationships that is absolutely contrary to the way that Christians are to think. Now, what do we think about the second sentence there? Uh, This person said, if a guy can get a woman pregnant and then run away, there is no reason why she should be the one responsible for everything. Well, in the biblical worldview, a woman would not be responsible for everything. Even if the man, the husband, which is who it should be in the Bible... Right? Even if for some reason the husband died or the man runs off or something else happens, the woman is not left alone. In the biblical worldview, the woman was given to the husband by the father. and She can always return to her father and be cared for there. But then especially we see in the law that God gave Old Testament Israel that there was to be a kind of care that the community around the woman provided. Uh, all the time. We see the, the care for the widow and the orphan that we read about this morning. Orphans in the Old Testament were children who did not have a father often, even while their mother lived. Uh, also, in the Old Testament, we see passages like uh, those that instruct the Israelites not to glean their fields all the way to the edges, but to leave them uh, where those who were in need could come and, and take. And so we would argue, and we would be the first to say, that we do not want any woman left in a desperate circumstance uh, with no help, with no care around her raising a child. Having more options puts a woman on more equal footing with men instead of being someone of whom they can take advantage. So here is where we begin to see the whole equality social justice movement showing itself. Abortion helps women be equal with men. So how do we think about that? Well, first of all, we as Christians agree that men and women are equal in dignity as image bearers of God. We wholeheartedly affirm that there is an equality of worth, of value, because we were created as man, male and female. And that God designed us to be that way for His honor, in His perfect purposes, in His wisdom. 
When we denigrate one sex or the other, when we act as if one sex is less valuable than the other, we are sinning. We are thinking outside of biblical ways of thinking. We affirm the equal dignity of men and women. But men and women were not created to be equal in every way. Uh, Men and women were not created to have all the same roles, uh, to live exactly the same lives. Uh, Crystal mentioned to me a quote recently, uh, maybe it was from the book, I don't remember where it came from, but said that, uh, you know, God created men and women to uh, exist in harmony. Feminism would have them all singing the same note, right? All singing the same note rather than being different and embracing their differences. We saw this morning, God is glorified when there's unity in diversity. There ought to be a kind of unity among men and women where our diversity, the glory of men, are those things that God gave men to do that are unique to men. The glory of women are those things that God gave women to do that are unique to women. And what feminism tries to do is, is, is wash away all of those things and make us all the same. In the Bible, we see that men were given a special responsibility to be the caretakers of wives and children. To be the leaders in having dominion. Uh, Men were given greater strength befitting their special role. But then we see women given special responsibilities. This would include the responsibility to carry any children that God might give to them. Um, Single parenting uh, was not something that would have existed in the Garden of Eden. It's the result of sin and the fall, whether it be through tragedy, through fornication, or through divorce. Seeking to make men and women equal in every way is against God's design and against God's glory. God could have made us all a one-gendered creature. He could have made all humanity, all men or all women or something else. But He did not. For His own glory, He made us as a two-gendered creature. His glory is shown in two genders. The equal footing argument tends to rob women of their special glory. And it minimizes God's special gifts and callings to women. And it emphasizes God's special gifts and callings to men. There is a sense in which feminism is actually partial to men. Because it says that women ought to be pursuing those things that God gave men to do and to be while it minimizes those very things that are to be the glory of women. So in this argument, the idea that's behind it is women for too long have not been able to be like men. We haven't had the same opportunities to pursue whatever it be, careers, higher education, those kinds of things. And part of the reason was this thing called kids. Kids get in the way. Kids keep women from being able to pursue the things that have characterized men. Therefore, abortion becomes a solution to men and women being equal. Understand that in this worldview, if you are pro-life, you are unjust. You are unjust because you are keeping women from the kind of equality that they are to be pursuing and to have with men. For too long, men have had the power, the resources, the voice. Abortion is a means to helping women have greater power, resources, voice. So in the new way of thinking, being pro-life is to take a stance that is unjust. Uh, This person says, it is better for children not to be born than to be born hated. So, I would say say three things to that. First, who are we to make such a judgment? Are we in the place of God that we can say that for any particular child, they are better off not born than they are had they lived with a family or with a mother who didn't want the child? Uh, Second thing I would say is that just because of the nature of the way God design human beings, and particularly mothers, um, I don't know many mothers that truly hate their children, even those who maybe didn't want their children when they first found out they were pregnant. 
I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure it happens on rare occasions. But I don't think that's the way it normally plays out. I think the more important argument I would make to this is, where is adoption in this argument? Why is the solution to an unwanted child the death of the child rather than the opportunity for the child to be received and loved by people who would receive and love that child? So that's, that's the first argument. You see a little bit of how it's coming from that secular worldview. It's coming from this idea of men and women needing to be equal. Um, any thoughts, comments that you have on that first argument? right. What, what, yes. That's right. It, oh, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Um, when men no longer have to fear the consequences, they feel more at liberty to take advantage of women. There, there are some commonalities to that, Bill. And, and what we are seeing is, as feminism for so long has demeaned true femininity and tried to encourage women to pursue the roles of men, so now what you're seeing is a true blending of the gender, even as people try with pills and surgeries and, and to, to actually biologically become a blending of, of the genders. And uh, we do see some of that. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Let's look at the second argument. I'm going to see if I can do this well or we can get to it. Ah, there we go. So this is a graduate student. Okay, so they're a little bit older, presumably. I've been in MIT a little longer, but a graduate student in biology. This person said, The single most important factor... For women's advancement in society is our ability to control our fertility. Without that, we are trapped by the realities of pregnancy, childbirth, and childrearing. Rather than a privilege and a gift, these aspects of being female become an unbearable burden. Attempts to limit women's reproductive freedom are no more than a gambit to keep women in their place. A gambit in the guise of religious moralism. True, the guise can run deep, and many so-called pro-lifers genuinely believe that killing a fetus is equivalent to killing a human being. But such religious feeling has no place in the public policies of a country that claims to separate church and state. In the words of Supreme Court Justice O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I think this particular student's answer hits on so much of what marks the current social justice way of thinking and the growing secular worldview. 
So let's just take it a little bit at a time. The first thing that's said here is that women must control their fertility to advance in society. Advance to what? Why do you see roles that have traditionally belonged to men as an advancement? And does that not demean the traditional roles of women as helpmates and nurturers and caretakers? And are those not roles that ought to be honored rather than despised? Uh, Women should control their fertility. But in God's way, according to his design, namely by not committing sexual immorality. Would you think about that statement that women are trapped by the the realities of pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing? Do you see the, the negative way that that is being looked at? The second argument here is that limiting reproductive freedom is an attempt to keep women in their place. Uh, Elizabeth Warren said, you're not going to lock women back in the kitchen. You're not going to tell us what to do. Uh, This is from an article. It says, she declared eliciting a standing ovation from hundreds in the crowd, many sporting pink Planned Parenthood t-shirts. So one of the things I want you to see is that for many, the right to an abortion is seen as a necessary right for women to take the place that they ought to have in society, according to this social justice worldview. There's this thing called reproductive freedom. What is reproductive freedom? What they're describing here is the freedom to control when you're going to have a child, how you're going to have a child, and if you get pregnant outside of your own plan, to terminate that pregnancy. It also is opening the door for a freedom to sin, for a freedom to engage in transgression without there being any consequences. We should notice that the Bible is equal in its commands to men and women when it comes to sexual intimacy. In a just society, both men and women will be held responsible for any children that they bring into the world. But we need to understand that men did not come up with the idea of sexual intimacy resulting in nine months of pregnancy for a woman. Men did not design this world this way in order to keep women, quote-unquote, in their place. What they are looking at is something negative, something terrible, something to be escaped from. Was God's design for women. A design that is good and glorious. A design that is something that, at least until late, late, late technology, men could never do. Men can't have babies. Men don't know what it is to carry a child within themselves. Men don't know what it is to have the special relationship that only a mother can have with her child. But all of that is seen as an obstacle to pursuing something better. And I guess the better thing is 40 hours of work somewhere for a paycheck. Argument three, this person says that religious feelings has no place in public policy due to the separation of church and state. So you hear that phrase a lot, separation of church and state, does not appear in the Constitution. There is no constitutional separation of church and state. What we do have is the establishment clause of the First Amendment which declares that Congress shall not make a law establishing a religion for the nation. So here's what our Constitution says government should not do. It should not institute a nationwide religion. 
But separation of church and state should never mean separation of morality and state. Our founders warned about this. And frankly, morality is central and inescapable to the job of government. So go to Romans 13. Let's see it again. Let's be reminded about the proper role of government. Some people say government shouldn't legislate morality. It's exactly what governments are supposed to do. That's, that's what the Bible describes a government is doing, is being the one that upholds the principles of justice and then executes judgment on those who violate those principles. If you do something to me, I am not to seek vengeance for myself. But God has appointed the state to bear the sword on my behalf and to bring justice. So uh, Romans 13 Start in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So you already see, we're talking here about rulers, statements about morality, good conduct versus bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. So doing good brings the blessing of the state. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. You hear more moral language here. If you do wrong... For he, the governor, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience and so forth and so on. A government cannot execute its role of upholding justice if it hasn't declared what is right and what is wrong. And... What government is supposed to uphold are the principles of justice that God has woven into the consciences and the hearts of every man. The very principles that are being suppressed by this new way of thinking. We find them in the second table of the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not um, steal. Uh, Government used to uphold marriage. and Still we get marriage licenses. You shall not commit adultery. Even honoring your father and mother, our, our nation does actually set aside days for honoring our parents, right? Father's Day, Mother's Day. Um, we used to say that the one commandment that government couldn't really enforce in the second table was the last one, you shall not covet. But increasingly, I think covetousness is woven in to this whole social justice movement, uh, where some groups are desiring what other groups have. And so governments actually can enact policies that would protect against uh, acting out of that sinful attitude. So government must uphold morality, and that means government must have principles of justice on which it stands. Well, one of the basic principles of justice is the right to life. It's woven into the command, you shall not murder. There is no neutrality when it comes to morality. Every law, every rule, every regulation is inherently moral. Declaring something to be off limits or establishing something as good. The question is what worldview will shape the morality of our culture and ultimately the morality of our laws. We could challenge this person. They're saying separation of church and state, separation of church and state. But what they're really concerned about is separating the state from that Christian view of morality. But they're not working to separate the state from other views of morality. They clearly think it would be fine for the state to be okay using their understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Their moral code says that morality based on Christianity cannot have a place in public policy, but a morality based on some other worldview can have a place in public policy. 
And then we have this argument that comes straight out of this Supreme Court decision. People must be able to define their own concept of existence to be truly free. This is at the heart of sinful man's rebellion against God. God, you do not define me. Others do not define me. I get to define me. I get to to decide what it is for me to be me and what my concept of existence is. This is so opposite of the Bible's teaching about what it means to be truly free. In Scripture, sin has taken us captive. Freedom is found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What is true freedom? It is having the Spirit of God at work in you. So that suddenly those those moral principles that you used to buck against, those moral principles that were so hard, suddenly now there's a heart in you to obey them. There's a you're finding yourself even at the level of your desire, aligning yourself with the will of God. That's freedom. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 32. I'll just read it to you. John chapter 8, verse 32. Uh, Jesus said, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it is a coming to see things as God sees them. And having the heart to follow them uh, because of the Spirit. That's where freedom is. There is no freedom in trying to define your own concept of existence. Ask the philosophers about that. Ask the existentialists. Ask Sartre. Ask Nietzsche about that. So many of those guys ended up committing suicide. It's a depressed thing. if You decide that you have to define yourself. But the right to define one's own concept of existence is at the very root of the fall of man in Genesis 3. It is the the very nature of sin itself. Because God had come to Adam and said, this is who you are going to be. You're going to be my creation with this mission of having dominion. You're going to be in this covenant with me. He established the terms of the covenant. He said, Adam, this is who you are. When the serpent comes, what does the serpent say? Did God really say Is that really how things are? Is existence really the way God said it is? Right? It's at the very nature of of sin. So so what are some other things that you would say in response to, to this kind of argument? That's right. It makes sense, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes.
Yeah. Yes, sin always leads to death. If you embrace these worldviews, you're ultimately embracing worldviews where in this view is the seeds for the destruction of society. And, and for so long, we. But we as a church, we, and I don't mean just we as an individual local church, I mean the church in, in America, for too long, we have not had the biblical worldview of how precious a child is and what a gift, no matter the circumstances in which the child came. What a gift is a child. But we also have, have I think, all, too often joined the culture in belittling the glory of women belittling those roles that God gave to women that are, they're miraculous. I mean, I don't know the word to use for them. They're, they're, they're stupendous. <laughs> How do you else do you describe what happens in the carrying of a child and the birth of And for too long, I think we have treated those things as something small and, uh, and, and not, we, we have belittled femininity in our churches. And I remember Andy Davis saying years ago that he said that, that biblical manhood and womanhood, our concept of what it means to be a man and to be a woman, he said that's going to be the place at which the church is going to fall out of favor with the culture. And I think that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Sin's everywhere. Sin's everywhere. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Sin will affect every institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The the path of blessing is always going to be the path of obedience. So the path of blessing is always going to be the path of trying to, to, to follow the pattern presented by the word of God. Nevertheless, you're right. Sin is going to be in everything in effect. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm here. you're exactly right. And we, we don't need to treat it as if suddenly we're going to bring paradise to earth if we fix this. Right. The, the, one more thing that I would say, and then, and then we'll just stop. Um, but they, they made the statement in here about some people. Let me see if I can find it. Here it is. Uh, Many so-called pro-lifers genuinely believe that killing a fetus is equivalent to killing a human being. The only question I would have for them is, 
how is the fetus, even if you call it a fetus, not a human being? I mean, it, I don't understand the, the terms there um, because clearly it's a human fetus. Clearly it exists. It's a human being. Right? <laughs> um, and I'll just say, if you go back to the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, what the Supreme Court justices said in that decision was they said, we don't know uh, when a fetus becomes a human life worthy of protection. And so they said, we're going to leave that up to the decision of the mother. I think a more reasonable thing to have said would have been, we don't know when a fetus becomes a human life worthy of protection. Therefore, we're just going to protect it. We're just going to protect it. That, that, that to me sounds like the wiser, cautious thing. And I will say, of course, that from the biblical perspective, I think from the moment of conception, uh, it is a human being worthy of protection. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Abortion and euthanasia go, go together because they both uh, treat the dignity of the human being capable on what it's, whether it's viable, whether it's self-sufficient, all those things. Of course. So, so the main thing I wanted us to get out of all this then is with the social justice thing is for us to understand that when you're talking to somebody who holds to a strong pro-choice position, most of the time they're coming out of this idea of abortion as a tool that must be given to women in order for them to pursue equality with men. That it is about equality. It is about equality terms, frankly, in very masculine terms. Uh, it, is, it is saying that women ought to strive not for the things that make women glorious, but that women ought to strive for the things that, that make men glorious, right? That women ought to forego the glory of women for the glory of men. And that, that abortion is just a tool in that regard. So if you wonder why people who are pro-choice treat you as though you're being unjust, you're anti-woman, if you're not pro-abortion, this is the worldview in, in, from which they're coming I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know because I think the answer would vary depending on the person, the person you talk to, how they would answer that. And, and as for the source of their moral code, so often the, the argument is Christianity cannot be the moral code for our country because that violates separation of church and state. There is no argument for here is the morality that ought to replace it. At least I haven't heard it. That's, that's not where the argument norm, normally goes. 
autonomy. The same principle in it. Yet, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I do think science is clearly on the side of the pro-life movement at this at this time, and we're seeing so many people uh, who maybe would have had abortions in the past not because of ultrasound technology. I think you're right. Well, I, I need to make sure anytime we talk about an issue as sensitive and controversial as something like abortion, I always want to make sure we, we say this. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Okay? Um, there is mercy for anyone who has had an abortion uh, in Christ. And um, we are not sitting here judging uh, as if somehow we're better than anyone who's done that. And I don't know that anybody in here has ever had an abortion, but I just want to be clear uh, that, that you know, there is mercy for that sin as well as others. But that we do want to make sure that we are standing up for something as basic as the right for children to live. And that we're also recognizing how this social justice mindset, thinking of right and wrong in terms of equality, uh, how that is redefining the way people think about these issues. And so hopefully we're better equipped to understand uh, where those around us are coming from. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good for it. We could be here all night. Yeah. It does. Oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Yeah, sure does. All right, let's pray. Oh, yeah. Go, go for it, Juan. I was just thinking, you know, the other thing I thought about is really like a, a, especially important to me was when I went to the Urban Church Center celebration thing this year and listened to the speaker and he talked about men have control too. So many men push their girlfriends or their whatever to go have this abortion. I'll drive them down there and I'll pay for it. So when we talk about that's a good word.
don't know. That's right. That's a very good word, Wanda. That it's not just the women. It is the men as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father.